The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Collar, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, Finance Presenter on ABC News and Columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, Contributor at Eureka Report, Founder of Crikey, Shareholder Advocate and City of Manningham Councillor. And we are the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Back in the cafe this week. Stephen, whose birthday is it? Today. Happy 51st birthday to my good friend Lachlan Murdoch. He's not your good friend. Born, well he's suing Crikey That is at the a moment. lie. He's suing Crikey at the moment. He did... Tried to sue James me Packers, personally. James Packer's your good friend, but well, Lachlan I, yeah. Murdoch is yeah, look, I got definitely another, not. I, I mean, James and James and Lachlan are like besties, and I got a I got another email from James Packer this morning actually because I wrote a, a gambling piece for Eureka, which also l- later got reworked and was in Crikey, and he read that, and so this morning at seven thirty, bing into the inbox, James Packer read your article where on is gambling he? in Crikey. Where is he emailing I from? I don't get into these personal questions, Alan. I just enjoy the engagement. He's on a yacht. He's on he's his on boat his t- somewhere. He's on his two fifty million dollars gin palace. He's somewhere off Spain, I think. But unlike Joe Aston, I don't get invited onto the onto the packet boat. But um, So he said, I read your article on gambling and crikey. I put more back into gambling than any other player in the gambling industry. More than Star, for sure. More than Bruce Matheson, for sure. More than Sportsbet, for sure. See, I reckon that's a big thumbs down for putting money into gambling. Well, no, what he's saying, I mean, is, what he's saying is he did CapEx of close to $15 billion on significant casinos and tourism assets in Australia and Macau. $15 well, billion, where Sportsbet doesn't have a shop in Australia and is ripping a billion dollars of profits out of the country. So that's his point, is he actually built stuff. The rest of these people just fleece the gamblers. They built websites. They built websites. Oh, yeah, isn't that fantastic? All the way from Dublin, sports bet. Two billion a year we're losing. They're making a billion. He actually says in this, he says, his greatest mistake is that he didn't become the sports bet of Australia. Exactly. I, I mean, the same with Bruce Matheson. I mean, all the local oligarchs, they've had their clocks cleaned by this Italian, this uh, Irish mob. Flutter, which um, owns Sportsbet, which has got a 53% market share in sports gambling, which is the fastest growing sector in the country. Yep. Anyway. And uh, they're stuck with all these bloody mausoleums, these palaces of iniquity. <laughs> High roller casinos well, are, in my view, gambling should be destination and is it, there is a tourism element to it and I think it's the most offendable element of gambling apart from lotteries. Online speaking of, and speaking of gambling, so we had we had the AFL broadcast deal this week, four and a half billion dollars over seven years. How much of that money is uh, gambling advertising revenue, Stephen? Well, of the four and a half billion, how much of it is gambling advertising? I had dinner with a former AFL president last week, who he claimed it was fifty percent, and I said that's ridiculous, and I think it's about twenty to twenty-five percent of the value. So basically, if the government came out and said we're doing a tobacco on the gambling industry, i.e. all advertising is banned, I think it would reduce player payments and the whole AFL revenue system by 20 to 25%. So why do you reject 50? This bloke knows what he's talking well, about. But it? basically, the, you know, people paying for Foxtel to watch games is not 
people paying to watch gambling ads. So people will still subscribe to Foxtel, and Foxtel is the majority of the money that the AFL is getting. So right. that's the number one thing. And then other advertisers will step up. KFC, fast food, beer. You know, you, you're really going to have a million people watching a game and, and the and the Channel 7 cannot find an advertiser. It's just no, going to no, be the, question the, is the not gambling about, premium will disappear. The question is not so much whether gambling could be replaced. Of course it could be, at a, as you point out, a lower, a lower price. The question is how much of the revenue currently is gambling. Yeah, well, my estimate is it's 20 to 25. And so all to fix this system, all that needs to happen is that the average player needs to go from earning 400000 a year to 300000 a year, and we can have a very good, pure, uh, family-friendly product. Right. And, uh, and, and I think the AFL is a disgrace, the way they've completely sold out to, uh, to gambling. And the governance of how they do these contracts is interesting. Like, Gillan McLaughlin... You said he was at Andy Penn's farewell, right, the Telstra. That's mid-negotiation. So he's doing a high-stakes contract with, you know, Channel 10 and Channel 9, they're all bidding, and mid-contract, he rocks up to Andy Penn's farewell when Telstra's bidding. At City of Manningham at the moment, we are tendering our highball and our aquatic facility assets. The officers and the property officer won't even tell us who the five bidders are. It's, it's blind, you know, it's de-identified. And I'm sitting there going, well, why can Gillan McLaughlin he didn't sit even next talk to, to Kerry Andy. Stokes at the footy on Saturday night with the Dockers game? Sat next to him. And then four days later, they announced this. Are you, uh, are you alleging something improper? I'm saying here, that Stephen? the tendering processes of, of these sports rights is opaque. And uh, I didn't, the AFL should never have done a renegotiation with a two-year extension but do you reckon that June uh, no, 2020. The, the question is who, pay, who offered the most, right? And if are you suggesting that Seven and Foxtel got it without offering the most? Well, well, this is the thing. It's so opaque, and it was two years before the contract was even up. Why are you going early? Okay, you think the value of rights might fall, but you know, was it a fair and open tender? Um, you know, so I just don't like contract extensions before contracts are up. Uh, in a sort of a non-transparent manner. I mean, I was very curious in the um, in the last AFL annual report, Richard Goida describes Kerry Stokes as Australia's most peerless businessman and said he's just retired as the executive chairman of Seven Group Holdings. I'm thinking, why is he mentioning that? Because he's still the chairman of Seven West Media, which is actually your contract par- partner, and he's not a peerless businessman. Seven West Media has got $3.2 billion of accumulated losses, second highest behind Hutchison Telecom Australia. So that, to me, said that Goida is too cosy with his Perth-based television rights partner, pumping his tyres up like that, calling him the number one businessman in Australia. They'll probably go for little bike rides together on, uh, on Sunday mornings, do you All think? All very friendly. And, and, a, and a latte afterwards. Yes. And I just, where will Gillan McLaughlin go next when he retires? Is he going to take a job with Sportsbird? Is he going to pop up on Foxtel, you know? There's no... Speaking of rich people, have you been invited to Lindsay Fox's uh, 80th, 85th birthday cruise? No. Oh, no. But, but apparently 450 people have, and it's couples. So it's 125. Uh, so it's 225 couples. Uh, half sort of internationals, half Australians. But he does. he's just got the best record of parties of any oligarch in Australia. I mean, it's going to cost five million bucks, apparently. Yeah, but that's everyone's going to get themselves to New York and then 12-day cruise. That's even more than my daughter's wedding. Oh, I just had my daughter's 21st at home with 100 people and that was probably 10 grand. That was stressful enough. So I don't know how he does it, but he... You didn't have... 
didn't have Guns N' Roses there. No, no, no. I tell you what, though, they drank a lot of vodka and Red Bull. Bloody hell. But um, Lindsay Fox, this story has never properly been told, but in 1992... Here we are, folks. You're hearing it here first. He had his 55th on the Nile, cruise down the Nile. Now, this was in the middle of the recession we had to have. Everyone was bleeding. And the ANZ CEO, Will Bailey, went. So he's cruising down the Nile while the bank's imploding. The directors read this in the paper... They and went to the chairman and complained, Milton Bridgeland. Milton had probably signed off and he didn't mind. So, bang, Milton was replaced by John Goff and then Will Bailey was exited. And the cruise was the trigger. So, I say to Sally Cap and others who are going to Lindsay Fox's 12 days. Be careful. Be careful you don't look <laughs> indulgent. <laughs> Sometimes things can happen. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, now, we should talk about the interest rates and the economy and, and the GDP figures. So, the um, uh, so the cash rate was increased another half percent to 2.35% on Tuesday, and as entirely expected, so no surprise there, on Wednesday morning, um, uh, the GDP number came out 0.9% uh, for the quarter, which was exactly as expected. So... We're back to the normal cycles. Zero surprises. The, the economy is actually booming. I mean, really, we're, we're in a we're in a boom, and it's going to be a boom bust. It is going to be a boom bust. I did like Gareth Aird on Talking Finance, the CBA uh, economist, who said that it's like we've just taken five vodka shots, and it hasn't affected us yet. So we're like the sixteen-year-old at the party. We've just gone five vodka shots and we're going, oh, this you is all right. Saw, this feels you okay. You saw them at your daughter's 21st. That's, right. That's right. And then an hour later, you know, <laughs> They're legless. Legless, that's right. So I, I do agree. I think that they shouldn't increase any more. Shouldn't increase any more. And uh, they're risking a lot of damage. I'm worried about falling business investment and we're totally dependent on the commodities boom. I mean, isn't it amazing that mining is now more than 50% of all profits? Hmm. 75 billion a year we're making out of mining. Yeah, and a lot of that's coal, coal and gas. gas. I mean, iron ore I mean, is what, 150 billion a year. We coal are, is 50 billion a year and gas is, what, 35 billion a year. We are possibly the world's largest problem for, clo for global warming, you know, because we're exporting all this coal and gas and, and also burning it ourselves. Yes, but, uh, you know, energy crisis in, you know... The UK well, we've got the, and prices we've got a record, up and record current account surplus. Money's pouring into the uh, government's coffers from coal and uh, still profits, knocking back every profits. single spending proposal because we've got a trillion dollars of Liberal Party debt. I'm getting sick of that. They should just be printing, as you wrote this morning in the New Daily, about just let the government RBA print to fix climate change. And I agree with you. Just print. Morrison well, printed 280 billion. Why can't Albo and, and and Jim do a bit of printing? That's it. But, yeah. but the independent, the, the Reserve Bank is independent. So, I mean, the thing is that they could tell the Reserve Bank what to do, but that would be a big deal. That would be revolutionary. Not that they shouldn't, but I'm just saying that, you know. They're in the straight jacket of, you know, oh, we've got to be fiscally disciplined because Keating, you know, brought well, home the bacon and balanced out, the budget. And so I, therefore, Jim's got to do that too. I, I was just pointing out this morning that the Reserve Bank printed money over the last two years. Quantitative easing, they called it. They bought, uh, they bought bonds. To the, to the tune of $350 billion um, uh, to save the economy from the pandemic. Yeah. So I'm saying, well, we've got to save the economy from climate change. Yeah. So what's the difference? And, I'm, and I've been saying on this podcast, we've got to save motorists from excessive transurban tolls. 
So what is the difference? Just print 60 billion and nationalise transurban and give cost of living relief Stephen, to motorists across the country. Stephen. It's the same thing. It's that just is a question just of how you socialism. spend you the money. You are just a socialist. You know, I'm a capitalist. I'm a capitalist. I'm, I, I'm, I'm just saying that it's inappropriate from an urban planning point of view to have this monopolist toll road company I quite, that, I quite that agree. keeps outsmarting we should have built short-term cycles. We should have built those tunnels and stuff ourselves I mean, the, with, the, with taxpayers' money. Oh, exactly. That's what should have happened. Yeah, exactly. But Kennett and Stockdale, who I was working for at the time, were we obsessed to, with um, we've got too much debt and deficit and the private sector will fix everything. They could have done a $1.2 billion design and contract, construct of course. Uh, contract contract and got the Balti Bridge and the tunnel done and then charged a few tolls for five years and then made it free. Instead, we've got this beast, the world's biggest listed toll road company that just gets getting bigger and bigger and you can't plan anything without dealing with them in Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane anymore. That's it. Because they're too big. And it's just, just oh, I think, I think it's really, I agree with you. I think it's an absolute disgrace. Now, just before we get on to questions, uh, you, you keep a very close eye on the reporting season. Were there any shockers coming in well, uh, late or afterwards? Well, the la- I call them the last day laggards. So there's usually about 250 companies that report on the last day of the season, August 31. Normally you get about 200 profits and 50 losses. But to track it, it takes about 15 hours. And this year I just did, I ran out of puff. So this year I just looked at companies that have got big losses and big accumulated losses. So here's a couple. So Hills Industries... Inventor of the Hills Hoist, famous Adelaide company, waited to the last day to reveal a $24 million annual loss, lifting their accumulated losses to $280 million. Now, this Hills Hoist company floated in 1958, and they were making TV antennas back then. Haven't they had a different story to Rupert, who took over News Limited in Adelaide in 1953, one little afternoon newspaper. So in the media space, Rupert takes over the world, Hills Industries... All these years later, penny dreadful stock, $280 million of net losses should never have been invented or gone public because they've destroyed so much money. Another one, Tali Digital has now got $207 million of accumulated losses. Absolutely never heard of them. Used to be called Navita Healthcare and then Avexa. They're based in Camberwell. These guys, they always change their names. They started off trying to fix AIDS, now trying to fix attention deficit disorders, now moving into ed tech. You know, That's because they've discovered a new bandwagon. The shares are 0.4 on. cents. You know, and these guys, they just try and sneak their profits out on the last day. You mean losses? And, and their losses out on the last day. Another one, Victory Offices, a, uh, a work share space, co-worker space. $50 million loss released on the last day. $78 million in losses in total. And Steve Brax has quit as the chairman. And they've just closed 10 of their 24 sites and taken an $8 million loan from the chair to stay afloat. Now, they have a genuine story of hardship because COVID smashed co-worker businesses. So I don't feel sorry for them, but I don't feel, I don't like any company which tries to hide their big losses on the last day. So a message to everyone out there is, if you don't want to get name checked on this podcast or in Eureka Report, just bring it out on the second last day and no one will notice. Fate worse than death, everyone. Don't do it. Get named on this podcast and it's it's curtains. <laughs> Let's do some questions, eh? Jaden says, I'm a young person working in financial planning, becoming an advisor soon, and trying to save to buy a house in one to two years without the bank of mum and dad. 
I believe the government needs to stop making houses more affordable, i.e. first homeowner grants and using super that will just inflate the price for the next person. I propose the government grandfather the negative gearing on investment properties to stop the wealthy driving up the prices. What are your thoughts? Houses should be considered a necessity and a place to live, not an investment. Well, I think we couldn't agree more, Jaden. Correct. Totally agree with the Labor policy in 2019 of grandfathering. So you don't just retrospectively wipe it out. They should have grandfathered the franking credits policy as well. Um, Jaden made a statement but turned it into a question by saying, what are your thoughts, question mark? Well, house prices are. I agree with Warren Hogan (laughs) on uh, Talking Finance this week, Alan. I reckon house prices are about 20% overvalued still and they'll keep coming off as interest rates go up. Um, But people say we need negative gearing to keep supply. And maybe, but what we need for supply is more government-funded affordable housing. There's absolutely no benchmark for what a house is worth. Yeah. So saying it's X percent overvalued, you know. But only 2.3% of houses in Melbourne are officially what's called affordable under the sort of the government-subsidised sort of definitions. It should be 10%. You know, so Melbourne's got the least of any capital city. So our governments have failed to invest. And the housing ministers are all meeting this oh, week. I couldn't agree more. But they need to step up and not rely on the private sector, totally tax-driven private sector, to provide supply. Yes, I agree. Now, Mike says, big question for Alan, is he still a fan of MMT? This time last year, there was minimal discussion of inflation and people thought MMT was the go. Maybe not now, hey, Alan? MMT You've caused for inflation with, MM, with modern monetary theory money printing, Alan. You have advocated it and you therefore true. have contributed to all this can inflation you, around the world. Can you believe it? I mean, hang my head in shame. <laughs> MMT stands for modern monetary theory, which was invented by my friend Bill Mitchell and Warren Mosler, who is an American now living... Well, the, the acronym was, the name was, just like I invented the Millionaire Factory... You know, you've probably invented well, a bunch of acronyms and nicknames. They invented the name, yes, all right. Yes. But the uh, okay, but the, the, the thing in about modern money, were, were modern money, there's a lot of misunderstanding about MMT. Um, it's it's thought to be that it advocates that uh, the printing of money, which is not the case. It does not. All it says is that for a, for a country that's um, uh, that has its own currency, which is Australia in most countries. Um, the only limitation on government spending and government money creation is inflation. But it is a, that is, inflation is a limitation. Yes. That's all. That's what, and, it, that's what and, it says. Because all that printing has triggered inflation, so which it, has curbed money printing now. That's right. But globally. Sure. That's right. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that uh, um, it isn't, uh, MMT doesn't advocate the printing of money. It just describes the way it works, which mm. is that a country that controls its own currency can print money, which is, yeah. of course, what has been happening. And that's why I think it's fine the thing is for the, Albo to spend money with printed money and, and, and go I, for it. But, but I just want to pick you up on what you said because, yes, quantitative easing has been going on, uh, particularly during the pandemic, but really in other countries since the GFC. Post-GFC, yep. Um, and so America and Europe have been printing money and Japan uh, for more than 10 years since the GFC, and it did not cause inflation. True. Inflation has been caused by supply chain problems and the Ukraine war. That's what's going on. And also... And uh, the pandemic, yeah. But also the coming out of the pandemic, there's a lot of savings, uh, mainly caused, produced by fiscal 
uh, stimulus, fiscal, printed, fiscal problem. Printed stimulus. So that $150 no, no, that, billion that's no, appeared was in borrowed. people's bank accounts it was, well, it was borrowed. borrowed and printed. It was a blend. It was well, it quite just separate. Borrowed. No, no, it was it partly was... printed, partly borrowed. <laughs> it was printed. Yeah. My issue anyway. is with I've no problems with Albo. As long as the currency doesn't crash and 67 is getting a bit weak, he can print as much as the market will take from my point of view. But so Albo's I'm not going to print money. I'm He's sick not of printing his, money. I haven't got a, I've got a trillion dollars of debt. What I object to is state governments like Daniel Andrews driving up debt to $200 billion, promising $200 billion suburban rail loops when he doesn't have a printing press. He doesn't have a fallback no, option. Not. But the feds do. So Victoria will have to be bailed out by printed federal money, in my view, if they keep on cranking up this debt so much. Uh, David says, Stephen, you have been encouraging people to engage with listed company AGMs. I would like to attend and ask a few questions. I've only ever attended online AGMs. If I want to attend and ask questions in person at an AGM, what is the process? Do I need to submit questions beforehand? Do I need to print something? Am I, uh, what, what if my shareholdings are th through a corporate entity? And one possible reason there is a lack of engagement from shareholders is people don't understand the process. Go. The beautiful thing about the AGMs in Australia is you don't even need a ticket to ride and they actually even allow visitors in. So they don't treat it as a shareholders meeting. They treat it as a public meeting. So you just show up and you, you don't, they up, don't even check if you've got shares. No, no, they do. You turn up and there's, there's a bank of people on the computer and you simply say your name and then they, they say, and what's your address? And you say your registered address or in my case, the PO box. And they say, yes. And they give you a blue card and in you go. So it is incredibly easy. Whereas when you try and go to a News Corp or a Fox AGM in America, you've got to pre-register uh, 10 days in advance to get a ticket. You've then got to turn up at a shopping centre uh, and be frisked by security. And then you've got to get on the company bus. So in other words, Rupert puts all these barriers in the way. Not Lachlan, because he's a lovely guy, but, but his dad, Rupert, who doesn't sue, he puts all these barriers Lachlan in the way. Not, Lachlan is not a lovely guy. I'm just, Look, it's his birthday. I just want to tell you it's that. It's his birthday. You've met him a few times, haven't you? I've met him once. You know, the first time I met him, I was drunk after being at a long lunch in Sydney as his business editor, and I was coming into the building at about four o'clock, and he saw me and he said, Stephen, you're wearing the same suit as yesterday. <laughs> so I went out and spent five grand on five new suits because I was terrified Lachlan had noticed I only had one suit or something. So... But apart from that, he's a nice not, guy. You didn't go and buy five suits. I did. I, I went out, you went out and, and, I, and bought, I went five, out and bought five suits when Lachlan Murdoch pointed out I'd worn the same suit two days in a row. Jesus. You're extremely suggestible, Stephen. Michael says, I listened to your recent podcast where a listener asked what happens with any excess dividend funds that don't cover the cost of a full share when registered for the DRP. Your guest and yourself advise that essentially an account is set up for you and the balance is carried over to the next time a dividend is paid. Whilst this is generally true, it's not always the case. Telstra, for example, donates any residual balances to charity unless you call the share register to opt out. It's always wise to check the DRP documents of each company as it isn't always the same. Now, I'm not sure that Telstra compulsorily donates to charity. I always felt the standard was... Um, have the balance and have the surplus and then just roll it over and then you can tick a box saying yeah so I, I did no, the question is whether the box is pre-ticked or, yeah, and, and or whether that, you have and to tick it so, correct yeah, and that okay. is a massive thing in in public company investor relations like when you have the we're buying the unmarketable parcels if it's we're selling you up unless you write back to us 
you know, that, that means that 80% of people get sent up, particularly when they don't put the reply pay envelope in there. So all those companies that are trying to blow away 100,000 unmarketables after a demerger, you send it out without a reply paid envelope and you say the default option is you're sold up unless you tell us. So um, I can't believe Telstra is is default taking people's surplus dividends away. But, you know, if I'm wrong on that, we'll correct it next time. Craig says, can you please come up, comment about the latest capital raising by Money Me? <laughs> Sounds like Mini Me. That's funny. Austin Powers, which provides a large discount to institutional investors and directors to take about 18% of the company, but in which small investors can't participate. Is this allowed? What's to stop them giving themselves half the company? Alan, can you please interview the CEO to have them explain this process? Well, I'm just going to, in the, in the meantime, interview Stephen Main. On that subject, this Come is on. an absolute shocker of capital raising. I, I couldn't believe it. So, this company raised forty-five million at a dollar twenty-five in a float in December nineteen. And they're, they're a finance company. They've got four hundred thirty thousand customers who they've lent one hundred one point three five billion to. Earlier this year, they paid one hundred thirty million for Society One, which is another sort of consumer lender. Oh, they bought one hundred. They bought Society, Society One. They bought and, Society One, but they one. paid for it eighty-five percent in shares. So they issued them sixty-six million shares, valued at a dollar seventy-five. Right. They then come out with a last day profit, August thirty-one, of fifty million dollar loss, mainly writing off goodwill. They claim they had a cash the, profit. The Society One goodwill, no yeah, doubt. Yeah, correct. And then they've announced a twenty million dollar placement at 50 cents when the stock was trading at 69 cents. So it's a 28% discount. And they say, and the directors are gonna be in for 1.2 million. So it's massive dilution at a massive discount compared to both the float price and the Society One purchase price. No wonder the stock has plunged from 69 cents to 43 cents since then, because everyone is outraged that this company is doing this. So I'm going to buy some shares and rock up at their AGM because this is just a shocker. And the SBP is only going to be 1.2 million. So token, they've got 2,700 shareholders and they're going to offer them 1.2 million only in an SPP. And besides, it's out of the money and there's no VWAP alternative pricing as well. So investors should leave it alone and sell their stock because this is a cowboy company, in my view. Celine. Stephen Main has spoken. Celine says, I'm new to share trading and have started buying shares with the help of financial newsletters, etc. Your report is awesome as always. My question is, hypothetically, if I have 40 shares of Wise Tech and wish to sell 15 to make a profit, it still leaves me with le- at least $500 worth of shares. Um, I think I need that amount to ensure that the company does not have the right to take my shares. Am I right? Does my chess account need to have at least that much, $500, so the company has no right to take back my shares? So... The answer to that is that, yes, you have to always retain $500 worth of shares. So this morning I sold one Prometicus share for $53, leaving 10 Prometicus shares worth $530. So you can sell an unmarketable parcel through Comsec, but you cannot leave yourself with less than $500. So I've got all these holdings of like 10 shares, but I can't do that anymore. So to hang on to my holdings of 10 shares, when I participate in the capital raising, I transfer those 10 shares into another account, go into the capital raising, get out of the capital raising, and then transfer my 10 shares back. Any new company I want to harass, like Money Me, I have to spend the full $500 and then sell the $500. So the bottom line is that 500 is the magic figure. 
you can do anything you like, but you can't buy less than $500 worth and you can't sell leaving yourself with less than $500 worth of shares. Right. Well, that's an excellent answer for Celine. Um, Vinod, it says. Vinod. No, I under, no, it's my turn. I think uh, that's right. Uh, I understand chemicals warehousing and waste management firm DGL Group is not covered by the intelligent investor. However, I'm keen to have your thoughts on DGL. I'm puzzled why the stock price fell nearly 50% in two days. I had a look at the annual report and did not find anything alarming except that guidance for FY23 could, will be provided later at the AGM. CEO owns 55%. Does make crazy comments sometimes, but we all do that from time to time, right? <laughs> that does not warrant a 45% fall in the share price. I like DGL because it is owner-led, has sound business growth and uh, end-to-end chemical solutions provided. So keen to have your thoughts. So I don't know anything about this company. What does the, the CEO makes crazy comments? Like what? Oh, yeah. Look, the founder's this Kiwi entrepreneur called Simon Henry. And this is what he said last year when commenting about a female New Zealand television personality whose photo had appeared in the prospectus of a rival company. So he said, quote, I can tell you, and you can quote me, when you've got Nadia Lim, when you've got a little bit of Eurasian fluff in the middle of your prospectus with a blouse unbuttoned showing some cleavage, and that's what it takes to sell your script, then you know you're in trouble. Now, I even got quoted in the Financial Times of London sledging this bloke after that. You know, it was a pile-on. You know, Jacinda Ardern, you know, what a sexist, racist thing to say. A gratuitous insult on a rival company for having a picture of a television personality in their prospectus. So he's a cowboy. His stock got marked down after he said that. And then he's produced a shocking result in the latest <laughs> period. And he's burnt $60 million of cash in four years. And it's all about... <laughs> roll-ups and paper profits and his <laughs> cash burn. So sucked into him with his stock falling 55%. And to Vinod, I just say, don't think this guy's a good bloke. Whoever says something like that, I wouldn't trust my money with. Well, yeah, that's right. I would say, yeah, we don't always say stuff like that, Vinod, not all of us, but we all do that, he says, from time to time, right? Yeah, no, we, we don't. We don't, actually. Times have changed. Times have changed. And that bloke's can't. We don't talk about Eurasian fluff. Correct. Correct. So... Uh, and look, just before we wrap up, um, you had a big go at indicative non-binding bids last week, and uh, we had a we had a, a question from Mark basically saying that that he agrees with you and why doesn't ASIC do anything about it? And I actually wanted to pick you up, Alan. I, I don't think indicative non-binding bids are the problem. I think the problem is schemes of arrangement, where they just get together and they do a board deal and they agree to everything, and then if 75% vote for it, the deal is done. So 24% can oppose and their shares are taken away. I want to go back to the old hostile takeover. You've got to get 90%. You start by doing a share market raid and getting 20%. Then you might try and do a deal with the board. I agree with you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but the thing is is that the indicative non-binding things only happens because they're all seeking a scheme. They're all seeking That's a right. scheme. That's right. I understand that. But but also they're all seeking – it's not just a scheme of arrangement. They're seeking due diligence due before diligence, they no, nominate the price. Correct. And I'm just saying that due diligence is a real problem. Yes. In my opinion because it, it creates an asymmetrical situation between the bidder and the vendor. Yes. Because the vendor is working off 
public information mm. and the bidders got apparently yeah. private information And if you're stupid the due like diligence. Elon Musk and you make an a, a, a unconditional offer without doing due diligence, then you can suddenly find you're spending $44 billion of cash on something you don't want in the case of Twitter. Know, but so but he, he was mad in not doing due diligence before he did his no, non-binding, but, but unbinding deal. It's a, it's a slightly uh, false analogy in a way because... Because he could, he would have known. He could have known without doing due diligence that um, uh, what what the false, what the bot, what yeah, the, the bot, bot, number bot number percentage was. was. Yes, that is not a due diligence figure. I think. Yeah, but who who buys something for forty four billion without doing due diligence? I mean, you'd walk through the house, wouldn't you? You'd look at the section thirty two. You know, you'd. you'd no, uh, but I'm talking about the difference between between private information and public information. So what's what's due diligence about? getting the bidder to know things that the vendors don't know. Mm. That's what it's about, mm. which I think is shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Well, I, I like the idea of multiple people being in the, in the due diligence room, in the data room, but the problem you have there is that when you let a competitor in, you, that's the really grey area. You can't let a competitor in to see all your dirty laundry and then they walk away and say, thank you for showing us all of that. Now we're going to go and out-compete you and steal all your best clients. Precisely. No, no. I think the whole yeah. due diligence thing is problematic. Yeah. yeah, but from a private equity point of view where they're not a currently, like KKR and Ramsey, KKR is not currently, you know, in the hospital no, but space. why should so they, they be allowed to, in, I mean, we could go along like this well, all day. Well, they're offering but, a big price. No, and the shareholders want a big price. You're saying they've got to pay $77 a share without even having a look? I think there's a lot of public information mm. and it's audited and it's true. So come on, what do they need to know? It's audited. Goodness me. Okay, but what do they need to know? I, don't, I mean, honestly. Yeah. I think there's a I mean, you and I have never been into a data room. Well, I guess you might be, you had a data room when you sold That's the right. Eureka well, and we, Business we, Spectre. You yeah, know, we, had, we gave them due diligence. Correct. News Corp wouldn't have paid thirty point yeah, five million for your business if, um, which you were a minority shareholder in, if you hadn't opened up the books to them, which you did. Sure, but we were a public company. Yeah. Anyway. But they were being responsible public company, demanding to see under the hood before they gave you tens of millions of dollars and well, your shareholding partners. Well, I'm telling you, I don't think there was anything. Anyway, look, it's all right. We'll yes. Just... Now you're taking a break. I'm now, taking a break. You're not going on Lindsay Fox's boat, though, apparently. What, what are you doing for the next two weeks? I'm going to somewhere nice. Good. Within Australia. Good. I'm not flying. I couldn't possibly, having watched... Risk, risk watched Qantas. Night after night on the news, there's yes. these poor, miserable souls standing around airports yes. waiting for their luggage. I'm not yeah. doing that. Thanks very much. Uh, so we're driving. Yes. Interstate, though. Somewhere north. You're driving north. Oh, very nice. Well, so, you enjoy a chuka or wherever you're going. Don't play too much on the pokies when you're up there. I do like a chuka, but I'm not going there. Yes. <laughs> I'm not asking you to disclose your location, but have a nice holiday and I'll be filling in for you in a fortnight. And James has got a, a new second guest next week, I think. Someone different. Next, next week, James has got Olivia Long, who is the Eureka Report SMSF coach. So everybody, if you have... Um, questions about your SMSF and there are a couple of SMSF questions in today's questions which we are holding held, over, held over yes. for Olivia Long who um, is a brilliant person brilliant. On, uh, on SMSFs. Brilliant female guest and I'll be filling in the week after with a mystery so, female guest as well. So, A mystery female guest? Yes. I haven't done the deal yet but <laughs> I've just said it's guaranteed it's going to be female because right. we have too many male voices here and we're going to 
next few weeks we're going to have some female voices, which is a good thing. Olivia lives in Adelaide, so it'll be a, um, it won't be in the cafe, it'll be remote. So send in your questions on SMSFs uh, or anything else to uh, Olivia and James to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. So until next time, which for me will be in three weeks' time, I'm, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report and those other things. And I'm Stephen May, Lachlan Murdoch's favourite person, contributor at Eureka and those other things. See you in a month, Alan. <laughs> <laughs>